0: Welcome to the free to choose media podcast. Today's podcast is titled Isaac Asimov, renowned science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov explores the appeal of science fiction, as well as the consequences of scientific understanding in popular culture. Listen now, and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the free to choose media podcast. At the risk of seeming self-serving, uh, science itself is a difficult task. Uh, Experiments don't always work. Uh, Experiments sometimes go awry. Sometimes the equipment doesn't work well. Sometimes there's an unexplained leak. Who knows? You sweat away and progress seems terribly slow and life is tense. And so then in your off hours you read some science fiction where experiments always work, scientists always prove their thesis, the good wins out. You know, it's... The philosophy is the same, like that of young women who in real life find that men are few and those that they can find are either married or worthless and romance is virtually non existence and getting a date on Saturday night with someone worthwhile is a mug's game and so they read romances where the young lady gets this wonderful guy and it's a great relaxation and it does you a lot of good you can face the world so what romances are to young women women in difficulties science fiction is sometimes to young scientists in difficulties uh, that's one thing another thing is that uh Science fiction can sometimes be inspirational. That is, it may not tell you exactly how to solve your problems, but it may initiate a line of thought that can help. Uh, I remember once I wrote an essay for a science fiction magazine. It wasn't actually a science fiction story, but I could have easily used it in this story, in which I tried to figure out uh, how hot a temperature could be in the universe as it is today and came out with some sort of figure. Of course, not being a theoretical physicist, I was laughably over simple. But someone at, the, uh, someone at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton happened to read the article and he decided to try to work it out for himself. He tried to work out the temperature at the center of a star about to go supernova. And he decided, that under those circumstances, there'd be a grand production of neutrinos, which would leave the center almost at once, since it interacts hardly at all with normal matter. And that would subtract energy from the center, leading to this tremendous collapse. And he published a paper. And he sent me a copy. And I reported it in one of my essays. His name was Hong Yi Chu. He also was the first to use the word quasar in place of quasi-stellar object. And uh, that was in the 1960s, 20 years later, when we finally observed a supernova uh, quite close to us in the Greater Magellanic Cloud and observed it from the very start. We detected that flood of neutrinos. So that I've always thought that unwittingly, I had given rise to a line of thought which predicted this. Of course, it's a source of great grief to me that nobody in describing this supernova ever mentions Hang Chu's paper that I know of. And uh, I feel bad about that. But nevertheless, the fact remains that uh, even when science fiction isn't predictive, the science fictional mind can nevertheless be useful to real scientists. Fred Hoyle's the Black Cloud, when uh, his famous physicist predicts the arrival of a cloud, which is which is not known: a, how far away it is; b, its velocity or its size. And he does some neat physics and some uh, and some integral calculus to determine what that is. Uh, of course, Fred Hoyle isn't fair. He's a real honest-to-God astronomer. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you're perfectly you're perfectly right. Uh, the best science fiction from the scientific standpoint, is actually pretty close to authentic science every once in a while. And uh, we have certain objects we use in dealing with dangerous radioactive materials. That is, you put your hands into gloves and you can manipulate objects on the other side of a concrete wall, which protects you from radiation and you can actually lift test tubes and pour them. Do You do it outside and the objects do it inside exactly as your hands move. And they're called Waldos because Robert Heinlein wrote a story called Waldo in which he described the hero doing exactly that. And Heinlein also wrote a story called Solution Unsatisfactory, which was published in 1941 before Manhattan Project, in which he described something very much like the Manhattan Project, which had actually developed a nuclear weapon, not a bomb, but radioactive dust, in other words, fallout, and used it to end World War II. And then he developed the idea of the nuclear stalemate following World War II and the fact that there was no good solution to such a stalemate. That's why the story was called Solution Unsatisfactory, which meant that Heinlein had predicted the nuclear stalemate before the nuclear weapons had been developed. And I often wondered what might have happened if the leaders of the world had read that story and pondered it uh, long enough to realize that they were going down a wrong road somehow, but they didn't. Well, science, real science, is hard it asks a lot of concentration on the part of the student. Uh, it can't be read while you're half asleep. Uh, you can't read it properly while you've got your legs propped up in a hassock and you're leaning back. In. You have to work at it. Now, I'm afraid that the average person follows the line of least resistance. It's easier to read science fiction than to read straight science. It's easier to read science popularizations than professional science complete with mathematics. It's still easier to read romances, and it's still easier to watch television. And if you listed the tendency, the number of people who would do this, the number of people who do that, you'll find that the increase is always in the direction of the lesser demand it makes upon the person. Well, in a way, this isn't fatal. We don't all have to be scientists. Science can be a minority activity. If one person out of a hundred understands science really well, the human species can still progress. The figure might even be less than one out of a hundred. However, in one respect, it is dangerous. If we live in a democracy, as we do, we have to depend on people's votes. These days, our leaders ought to be able to understand science. They ought to be able to make scientific decisions, sensible ones, which would be backed by the popular will, because they are sensible decisions. As a matter of fact, I would say the large majority of our leaders know very little about science, are very little interested in science. The general population knows even less, perhaps, that they don't bother to put pressure in a sensible direction. They let things drift. With the result, that catastrophe may result, <laughs> with, the result of, with the result, there may be catastrophe. Now, in my own small way, I try. I've written literally at least 200 books on various phases of science for the general public, in many cases for youngsters, uh, in the hope that enough people will read them to become interested in science and to carry on, or at least to gain enough interest to be intelligent spectators. This is the sad part. Of our society particularly. I suppose that the percentage of the American population who can play baseball with something approaching professional elegance is even smaller than the number of Americans who can do science with something approaching professional elegance. And yet so many millions of Americans know just enough about baseball to be able to watch baseball games with at least some understanding of what's going on. They know when to cheer and when to groan. And yet, how few can make any sense at all out of science. And science, of course, is of infinitely greater importance, not just because I say so on account of I happen to like science, but because Science may, through misuse, destroy the human race. And science, through good use, may solve our problems. Now, baseball or any other sport, while important for, for amusement and for excitement, and I don't belittle that, nevertheless, whether one team wins or another team wins, or whether the games are played at all, is neither going to save nor destroy society. But science can. So that you think out of out of self protection or out of love of their children, people would say, well, sports are fun, but let's understand science. They don't do that. And there's nothing in our society to persuade them to do that either. So that uh, I can't help but feel sometimes that I'm pursuing a useless aim and that I'm doing it only because my own conscience tells me that the only way I can possibly sleep at night is to feel I'm doing what I can. Unfortunately, I also make money out of it, which sort of spoils my, which spoils the great idealism of my intent. On the other hand, I am not sufficiently idealistic to refuse the money. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.